Well, once again, it is a delight to be here with you all this evening. You know, Daylight Savings really helps to put the evening in evening worship when you start at 5.30 or as we do at Antioch at 5 p.m. But um, just a word, in case you're not aware of what we're doing at Antioch, we're the oldest church plant in the PCA at 180 years old. And um, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. The church was originally organized 180 years ago in 1843. And it was reorganized in 1904 after a relocation for 20 years. And then in 2020, we reorganized again as the aging congregation there approached our presbytery and said, please send a group that might be willing to take over stewardship of this 10-acre property and the ministry here. And as uh, we looked as a presbytery at the demographics of the area, we recognized that it would be not just sad, but tragic if the church closed because there were thousands of homes going up. And so Dr. Joseph Piper and I, while still working at Greenville Seminary, uh, went in and said, we're happy to sustain the ministry here if you'll allow us to do so. The Presbytery gave us their blessing in a provisional session. We started with three families, totaling 11 people, five of whom were my children, uh, in September of 2020. And my wife just did a little calculus of all the regular attenders of the church, inclusive of our active members, and it's somewhere around 80 people now. In terms of membership, it's something like 17 households. So the Lord is blessed. Um, I'm now full-time there, have been full-time since the beginning of this year. I left the seminary in order to take that call, and uh, we're prayerfully seeking for the Lord's blessing and the training of officers in due time, not rushing that. You can't rush that. And then, of course, particularization, which I know most of you, if you're here at the evening service, are probably very well aware of. Um, remember celebrating that here at Christ Church many years ago. So without further ado, let's unite our hearts in prayer once again as we seek for the Spirit's help on the reading and the preaching of God's Word this evening. Let us pray. O Lord, our God in heaven, we come once more to your Word this evening with eager anticipation that you have purposes to bless us as your people and as your covenant community. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you would grant us the graces which he brings in his train, graces to understand your word, graces to grow in grace and godliness, and graces, O oh Lord, to carry it with us as we embark into the week ahead in our various callings. Lord, we pray that you would grant unction to the preacher and give him ability to speak words of truth and life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, turning your Bibles to Psalm 23, Psalm 23, a familiar and beloved passage. I almost wanted to read it in the King James, just because it feels right to do that. But we're going to read in the English Standard, which is what you have. Psalm 23, this too is God's holy, inspired, life-giving word, sufficient for faith and practice. Give heed to it. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, 
a comfort to me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. God grant his blessing to the reading of his word. If I use the phrase comprehensive care, what comes to mind? Perhaps if you're a bit older, more experienced we should say, you start thinking about these brochures that show up in the mail, comprehensive care facility, state of the art, modern, assisted living, and you're thinking, why do I need to think about such things? I'm, I can't be that old yet. Um, I remember when those started coming in for my parents, and even after my dad passed, you know, these mass marketing groups, they have no compassion for us. They remind us of our departed ones, and they continue to send us this junk mail for them. But these comprehensive care facilities, if you think about what they're claiming to do, it's, it's rather bold, isn't it? They're claiming to take care of all of your needs. The word comprehensive, it means something. It's not partial. It's not piecemeal. It's the whole picture. A comprehensive care facility at least claims to address all kinds of needs, principally medical needs, needs, you know, basic needs, such as for a place to lay your head down at night, food to eat, but then also social needs, to have some kind of community, to have some kind of contact with others. Some comprehensive care facilities even give you a pet to take care of you, much less you to take care of it. Usually the most important things, though, are those medical care needs, which we need as we approach the end of life. Because what's happening? Even long before you get to the point where you have to think about such sad things is you begin to feel the ravages of sin and the curse even in your body. In Genesis 3, God pronounces a curse on all creation as a consequence of the sin of our first parents. And we feel that curse today, don't we? You read about it in Genesis 4 as affecting even the relationships between man and man, brother and brother, as Cain slew Abel. And, and as all of society is corrupted in the most horrific fashion. And then in Genesis 5, as that genealogy rings out, the genealogy of Seth, we read about Adam's descendants, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But without, or perhaps risking, sounding a bit irreverent, I don't think that you or I necessarily even need scripture to tell us about the ravages of sin and the curse. We feel it every day, don't we? Turn on the news and you see the conflicts. You look in the mirror and you see the gray hairs and the crow's feet creeping up your cheeks. Perhaps your child falls off a swing or jungle gym and breaks a wrist or an arm. We had that happen at Antioch not too long ago with one of our kids. And the question we might ask is, is there any hope for true comprehensive care from God in a world such as this, where we've been kicked out of that paradise of Eden and we feel in our very limbs and in our hearts the ravages of sin and the curse, which is its consequence. 
Well, in Christ, our compassionate king, we considered this morning, uh, he who describes himself, identifies himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep in John chapter 10. Um, we see offered to us in him comprehensive spiritual care. Indeed, care that I hope to explain from Psalm 23 touches every aspect of who we are, not just our spirits, but also uh, our physical beings. And, and we're going to unpack what I mean by that. But as, as Jesus describes himself in John 10 as the good shepherd who lays down his life, he's compounding two ideas. And we don't have time this evening to read all of Psalm 22 and all of Psalm 23 and unpack it. But in Psalm 22, you have the Messiah, the anointed one who lays down his life. And in Psalm 23, then, you have the good shepherd who protects, provides for, and promises certain things to his people. Well, what I want to show you this evening from Psalm 23 is that God in Christ our King cares comprehensively for his people. God in Christ our King cares comprehensively, completely, perfectly, totally for his people. We'll consider this under three headings matching the structure of the psalm. Look at the psalm with me. You'll notice in verses 1 to 3, the psalmist uses the second person, doesn't he? He says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then in verse 4, he shifts. And the subject of the verbs now is the first person singular. I walk. I will fear no evil for you are with me, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then in verse 6, he shifts again to the third person where he says, uh, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're going to follow the psalmist's structure here and dividing this psalm into three parts. In the first place, looking at how God provides for us in verses 1 to 3. And then in the second place, how God protects us in verses 4 and 5. And then finally, in verse 6, how God promises himself to us. God provides for us. God protects us. God promises himself to us. How does God provide for us? The psalm gives us two aspects of this. He provides for us from a place of perfect knowledge, and he provides for us by nurturing our righteousness. This place of perfect knowledge, it's necessary for comprehensive care, isn't it? If you're going to promise comprehensive care to someone, you better know everything about them and so that you know everything that he or she needs. And God has this perfect knowledge of us in order, therefore, to provide perfectly for us. In verse 1, David testifies, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Such familiar and blessed and beloved words, but we mustn't lose sight of the profundity of it. There's a tender logic here in, G in, in David's words, because God is not just the shepherd, because God is not just God, but my God and my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. David says something here that is marvelous and wondrous about who God is, what God knows, and therefore what God does for him and who God is to him. 
See, God, who is a ray, who, who dwells in, in inaccessible light in heaven above, indeed, he who, for whom the highest heavens cannot contain him, this same God, David says, is my shepherd, the one who calls me by name, the one whose voice I respond to and follow on the paths of righteousness, as we'll consider in a moment. David, unlike 20th century theologians, doesn't crassly immanentize God. He doesn't take anything away from God in saying this, but he recognizes that God has laid claim to him by calling him out of the sheepfold in Bethlehem to anoint him as king and to preserve him and to have his purposes in him. And this is a reality that each and every Christian believer, every single one of you, united to Christ through faith, by your effectual calling, by the Holy Spirit, this is something each and every one of us can testify. That God who spoke the worlds into existence has called me into his fold. God is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. I shall have no lack. Now, this doesn't mean you get all that you want, but God who knows what you need will give what you need. And that might sometimes be to deny your particular wants. Boys and girls, I know we're sleepy. It's a rainy day in Charleston, and it's dark outside, but hear me out. If after the service, you went to your mom or your dad, and you said, Mom, Dad, I really need a piece of chocolate cake. I really need a can of Coke. I really need uh, a bowl of ice cream. How would your parents respond to that? Now, I'm assuming a lot about your parents here, but I'm going to guess your parents would say, no, you do not need that. What you need is a good night's sleep. So I'm going to withhold that from you, maybe tomorrow at the appropriate time, uh, if such and such conditions hold, if you do X, Y, or Z, if you listen to your dad, um, would you be disappointed? I would be disappointed if I were you. But would you recognize the wisdom in what your parents said? In denying you ice cream, they're actually ensuring that you get what you really need, and that's a good night's sleep before uh, a week of school or whatever you have ahead of you. In much the same way, this is just a very simple, homey illustration uh, for how God provides for us. It's not that he gives us everything we want or even everything we necessarily ask for, but he knows perfectly who we are and he gives us what we need because the gloriously transcendent and all-powerful God who rules over earth and sky is my God, is your God, is our shepherd. He is very, very near to each and every one of us. The shepherd's voice is a comfort to the sheep, and so too our God's voice is a comfort to us. He has this perfect knowledge of us in this relationship that we have. And in verses 2 and 3, unpack for us what it is we need, and that is righteousness. God, our good shepherd, nurtures our righteousness in leading us by and in Christ our King. Notice what David testifies he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David, as a shepherd himself, uses pastoral language to describe how it is that God is taking care of him. And this is how we can understand 
how God in Christ takes care of us. Isn't that what we read this morning in Matthew chapter 9, the first uh, metaphor that Jesus uses or that Matthew uses to describe Jesus and his compassion is, uh, is a pastoral metaphor. Jesus has compassion on the people because he sees them and he's moved as he sees them distressed and dispirited, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So too now we see the shepherd metaphor, perhaps in the most famous passage of scripture containing it, where this language is used to describe the, the sustenance of life. How God is our good shepherd provides for our every need for life, and as we say, life and godliness. No, there's no life. There's no lying down in green pastures. There's no enjoying still waters for drinking. There's, there's none of this apart from doing what? Walking in the paths of righteousness. And this is the way that our God leads us by word and spirit and paths of righteousness in our lives. Now, I want to make something very clear. Does this mean that we somehow earn the right to be in God's flock, to enter the sheepfold? Absolutely not. That is not what this is saying. We're not talking about infused grace leading to justification. Look at Psalm 100 if you wish to turn there or just listen. That'd be fine too. Notice what the psalmist says there, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Notice how the psalmist there unites the, the gracious invitation, this call to worship and God's glorious work of creation with his role as a shepherd. It's not that you earn your way into Christ's flock, dear ones. It's that God makes you his sheep. It's his work to bring you in to the flock. And then once you're there, he leads you on paths of righteousness for his name's sake and indeed for your good. For our good and his glory, they always go together in the divine economy. So though the psalmist here speaks of holy living on the paths of righteousness, back of that we must understand this side of the cross is the sin-atoning death of Christ by which we have a right to be in his flock. We are his sheep because he, the Lamb of God, who even now in heaven stands as if slain, went to the slaughter in our place and spilled his blood for our sakes, justifying us by his grace through faith in him. He is the one who is calling us to life, who has called us to life as new creatures born not of our own will or of the works of men, but born of the Spirit and of grace, the grace of God in Christ our Savior who is our shepherd king. And this understanding of what he's done for us and now of what he calls us to day by day, walking after him as our good shepherd on the paths of righteousness, this understanding then leads to a question. If tonight you claim to be a Christian, 
do you knowingly, willingly, and joyfully follow Christ our good shepherd on these paths of righteousness in your thoughts, your words, and your deeds? I know there's much stumbling. There's much tripping up. Sheep walking along a path. It's really not a graceful sight, if anything. But there's much, much grace in it when they're following after their shepherd. Or do you, like wayward sheep, strain at the guidance he gives? You hear his voice saying, do this, follow me. And is your first impulse to say, yes. Or is your first impulse to say, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to do that. Do you heed his voice? Ask yourself, do I listen joyfully to my good shepherd? Do I delight in his word? Uh, the psalmist says again and again, especially in Psalm 119, but throughout the Psalter, your word is my delight. Your law is my delight. I, on, I meditate on it day and night. Can we say that about ourselves? Or do we hear the law of God and we recoil and we say, legalism, fundamentalist, I don't want to go there. Well, here, David humbly submits himself to the Lord as his shepherd and says, he restores my soul in these paths of righteousness. There's life here, not life that I earn, but life that I receive in submission to his holy will. See, Jesus calls us to the cross by the thundering of his law on Sinai. And then from there, he calls us to follow him in the way of the cross, day by day, assuring us of his pastoral divine protection as he's providing for us. And that leads us to the second point here in verses 4 and 5 of God protecting us. There's two outworkings here that the psalmist describes of this protection. He gives us a picture of complete protection in the rod and the staff. But then he also makes very clear to us that God sanctifies our afflictions as he uh, paints the picture of a table being prepared in the presence of enemies. This complete protection in rod and staff, it's poetic. They're balanced. Um, it also matches uh, just the reality. Shepherds would have a rod and a staff that they would use to care for the sheep. Uh, but it's also, again, profoundly theological. Both tools are at the good shepherd's disposal. The rod to defend the sheep, and then the staff to pull them back when they get wayward. The, and, and therefore, they, they show to us two different needs that we have for protection. We, have pro we need protection from threats without, beyond us, outside of us, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. He uses the rod to scare them off, to defend us, but then we also need the, sh the, the staff, which isn't an offensive weapon, but has that, that big crook up at the top so that when a sheep begins to follow his own course, the shepherd can go to the end of the staff and get that sheep back on track. Threats within us that bubble up from our own ignorance or our own rebelliousness, our own sin. So what do we do as we think about this picture even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, we acknowledge that God has both tools at his disposal because both threats are very real and very present. No matter how far along we are in the Christian life, we're all still just sheep. So we're prone to wander. 
And certainly, the world and the devil are prone to prowl around and to devour us where we are vulnerable. But God is covenantally committed to protect us and to offer this complete dual protection within and without. Think of how God, our Savior, is so kind to us in this. You ever meditate on how God has every resource at his disposal to rescue you? And have you ever looked back on how he's employed those resources to rescue you? How you've gone off on a course of destruction and then by some move of providence or, or some awakening of the conscience or, or a well-timed sermon, you stop and you get back on track? Or perhaps uh, you, you recall being in a dangerous situation and then just in the nick of time, it seems that something or someone delivers you out of it. I have keen memories growing up in West Philadelphia. You get more of these than you would want, but I guess I got used to it. Going on walk with my mom, my dad, my brothers or sisters. And one time I was on a walk with my dad and um, going up a hill, I got ahead of him quite a ways. I was probably seven, maybe eight years old. And I, I cut through the tree line and get through the brush and there's a group of teenagers drinking or something because, uh, you know, it's West Philadelphia. And, and I get up there and they stand up and they start approaching me. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh no. Well, five steps later, my dad comes through. And Gil Groff is 6'2", and all of 250 pounds, a uh, guy who worked on trains. And those teenagers turned around and said, oh, hi, sir, and sat back down. And eight-year-old Zach said, oh, yeah, that's right. I felt good. It's a little illustration, a little picture of the kind of protection our Heavenly Father gives us, isn't it? Where just in the nick of time, threats outside of us suddenly dissipate because God has showed up. God has done something. God has delivered us. Our Savior is so kind to us. There's no weapon formed against us that will stand. Now, that doesn't mean that we will be free of affliction, of trial, of difficulty, of challenge. And that's why the psalmist says, David says here in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows in the presence of my enemies. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet this still is true. You are with me. See, God, our God, not only delivers us out of trouble, but when trouble comes, he is there to sanctify that trouble to his purposes in our lives, making us more like Christ and giving him all the glory. Now, I know that you have experienced this. Jesus in Matthew's gospel rings this bell over and over again for his disciples. You will face persecution. You will be slandered. You will be attacked. You will be torn down. People are going to lie about you and the ones you love because you follow me. Because you have a life of joy in Christ. People are going to tear you down but we can pronounce with the psalmist, you prepare a table before me in the presence of those people, the persecutors, the slanderers. And in those moments, one of the most beautiful ways that God works in us to sanctify those afflictions in us is to root up the bitterness, which, which is all too present in those situations, and to put in its place the blessedness 
of drawing near to him and even interceding for our persecutors. There's been this strange thing at Antioch. I don't know where it came from. I really don't. I can't figure out if it's a sermon I preached or Dr. Piper preached or just an idea the kids got. But in our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights and on Sunday evenings, the children, the children have begun to pray for our persecutors, not the persecutors of Antioch per se, um, but they're praying for the persecuted church that the Lord would deliver our brothers and sisters. We have a sister church in Nigeria that's facing constant threat by the Fulani herdsmen. We pray for them. We uh, have a very uh, strong consciousness of the dangers of being a Christian in China and Afghanistan and other places of the world. And our kids are praying for the church and then always making a turn and saying, Lord, convert the persecutors. Make them to realize what they're doing, that they're doing evil, and to turn from it. I don't know what to do with that except rejoice. Though these situations are horrific, they're horrible, I, I see how the Lord is sanctifying the persecution of the church even to our little ones. And I hope they hold on to that so as they grow up and they get belittled and mocked and excluded, perhaps even terminated from work or ruled out of certain opportunities, they can pray with joy in the Holy Spirit for the increase of God's kingdom and not be consumed with bitterness and fall away from the way of righteousness as we hear described here. It's not pleasant to suffer through slander or persecution cancer diagnosis, bankruptcy, a failed business, a betrayal. These are not pleasant things. The valley of the shadow of death is not a rose garden. But God sanctifies these unpleasant things to us for our blessings so that we can then fulfill our purpose in the midst of them to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were reading in our adult Sunday school class, I think it was Flavel, The Mystery of Providence. I think it's in that one where Flavel says, consider the opportunity you have in your pilgrimage before you get to heaven. You're going to glorify God without defect, without regret, without sin, without trial, without tribulation, without temptation, without sadness, without sorrow, without tears for eternity. But for a few short years, brothers and sisters, we get to rejoice in our Savior in the darkness. We'll never have this chance again. It'll be gone before we know it. And there is a particular blessedness in that, isn't there? A particular shine on the, the diamond of the Christian life that even when all the lights go out, we can lift high the name of Jesus, noting that the light of the world is yet standing on the lampstand. Profound, really. I'm awestruck every time I read Joseph's words in Genesis 50, verse 20. That which you meant for evil, God meant for good. Everything he went through? Or when I consider Calvin's accounts of students of his that he sent back into France during the Reformation, and then he hears just months later that they were carted off to their death and yet went singing the Genevan Psalms, even to the fire. What wonder is this, that God works such marvelous grace in the lives of his saints? Our God is faithful to provide, He's faithful to protect us, as seen maybe preeminently in the sanctification rather than removal of afflictions. And he's also faithful to promise himself 
to us. In verse 6, we see this. He promises himself to us now and in the future. A present promise and a future promise. Present communion and future communion. David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life right now. And I shall dwell or return to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever, for length of days, everlastingly, I will experience this communion. Notice this goodness and mercy following David. It's, it's a personification. Goodness and mercy is abstract things. They can't follow anybody. They're not like little clouds in a Disney Pixar movie going along a path. As David's personifying goodness and mercy, what he's really saying is God is with me every step of the way here. He goes before me, he comes after me, as it says in Psalm 139. God, my God, who is himself, his goodness and his mercy is with me. David is asserting the reality and also the assurance of God's presence in his life. And he's doing so at a time when life was not fun for him. In book one of the Psalter, we have a series of Psalms right at the very beginning, Psalms 3 through uh, 7, where David is facing fierce adversity. And Palmer Robertson characterizes book one of the Psalter as having this theme of adversity. The Psalms are written in the face of opposition to the kingdom which God has promised unto David. Psalm 23 is no exception to that. He speaks of the valley of the shadow of death. He speaks of his enemies. He speaks of fear. He speaks of trial, of, of danger. And yet, he can say, right now, I enjoy communion with God, my shepherd, who is himself goodness and mercy. He's following me all the days of my life. Can you say the same as David, no matter what it is you're going through? Reflect upon your life, again, how God has spared you even in the worst trials, or as your friends have fallen on the right and on the left. Yet you're here. You're here tonight at Christ Church. You're here gathering with his people to worship him. Why? Why? Do you know that this too is a sign, a signal, a precious manifestation of the goodness and mercy of God in your life? God himself, by the spirit of his son, is with you, dear Christian. And if you're here this evening and you're not sure about this Jesus, you're not sure about the spiritual realities we're unfolding and considering this evening, I ask you very simply, are you still breathing? This too is a gift from God. I remember I was in commission sales at a guitar store out of college and I was on the guitar floor and the other, the other guy, the second top writer was in the pro audio section, his name was Lee. And I said, I was talking with Lee and he's going on and on about how, you know, how he basically gets his money. And I, I said, well, do you ever give thanks to God for that? He said, I'll thank God when he does something for me. And I just instinctively, I said, do you breathe? <laughs> it just came out. Do you breathe? And he looked at me like, what does that have to do with anything? But isn't that true? Isn't that the question we can ask? As long as we're breathing, we have something to be thankful for. We can recognize the goodness of God, the mercy of God in our lives. The second half of verse 6 then shifts gears to the future. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My friends, whatever your spiritual condition, there's coming a date of departure for each and every one of us. 
when the thick curtain of the unknown will part and we will be ushered into the realm of everlasting days. At Antioch, we have a cemetery, about 250 or 300 graves, and we have to redo the gate. Someone put a chain link gate in between the stone walls. It, it just looks terrible. I want to put a wooden gate back there like we would have had originally. And as I'm thinking through this and talking to others about it, I, it keeps, I keep on having drawn to mind what Robert Murray McShane did in Dundee at his church. He put a big sign above the gate saying, Into Eternity. So that every time you went to the churchyard where the saints are buried into their rest until Christ's coming again, you're reminded into eternity. Because McShane, who was fond of saying that um, at the Lord's Supper we have a trysting day with our Jesus, like a dinner date, he was also fond of saying he purposed to keep eternity before the eyes and minds of his people day by day. And indeed, that is before us. Apart from Christ, eternity will be filled with untold and unspeakable horrors and terrors. That's what will await you apart from the good shepherd. There will be no lying down in peace. There will be nothing but eternal agitation and torment in the fires of hell. But what David is calling forth to mind, what he's looking forward to is one united to Christ is a green pasture, is still waters, is the house of the Lord. Because at the tender direction of your God and your good shepherd, there awaits his restored Eden. That which Adam and Eve lost is awaiting us in even greater glory because the glory of redemption is there and not merely the glory of creation. In here, the fullness of God's glory is on display for us to behold for everlasting days. Jesus, our King, is there in all his uh, splendor and beauty and grace. And this restored Eden's prefigured for us by the tabernacle in the wilderness, by the temple in Jerusalem where, where Solomon could say, here you will make your dwelling forever, but it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ himself by whom we meet with God, even as we will do this evening at the Lord's table, from whom we receive life and life eternal, apart from whom there is no hope. And Christ, who has gone before us into that glorious dwelling place, says that he is even now preparing a place for us in those heavenly places where God is. This place is full of life because it's full of God. And that's what David's looking forward to. That's what we're looking forward to in union with Christ, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where this picture, this promise of being with him, of being cared for by him, will find its fullest and ultimate expression where we will see without any shadow of doubt or trembling of heart that God in Christ, our shepherd king, cares comprehensively for his people, that indeed he has provided every step of the way. He is protected in all circumstances, and he has made good on his promise to give himself to us. As we prepare to come to the table this evening, this is a fitting meditation, is it not? That God himself in Christ has promised himself to us mysteriously and yet really and truly. Let us pray together.
O Lord, our God in heaven, we bless you and we praise you. We thank you for this word, this precious psalm, which many of us have stored up in our hearts, which many a saint has requested to be recited or sung at his deathbed, which many a parent has sung or reflected upon even at the birth of a child on special occasion. Lord, we thank you for your word. We delight in it. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts and that even now as we come to your table, you would strengthen us for that which remains for us to do as we make our sojourn to your house. In Christ's name we pray, amen.